Hi everybody, this is Wendy Murdoch and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to entertain myself, meet people that I'm really interested in talking to, and provide you some, with some really uh, great information. Um, just a side note that we have rescheduled Bob Bowker for October 15th, Thursday at four o'clock. I just sent out an email about that. And you do need to go to the MurdochMethod.com website and to the shop and make sure you join that. I think I also made a mistake with Sharon Wilsey's webinar that I didn't put the link to the Zoom meeting. So please rejoin that one if you already subscribed. Today my guest is Jen Reutz and she's from the Retired Racehorse Project. Welcome Jen, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is great. So, so we were just having a little brief chat here and it turns out that we are from a similar stomping ground. Um, I got my master's degree at the University of Kentucky. I will not say what year that was, but it was before the Gluck building was built. Um, and it turns out that, are you a native of Lexington? I'm not. I'm a native of Cleveland, Ohio. And then I came down to Kentucky for college because I loved horse racing and I wanted to go to college somewhere in close proximity to thoroughbred and thoroughbred racing. So are, are, did you go to UK? Is it for fellow Alma Maters? <laughs> I could say yes. No, my undergrad is from uh, Moorhead State University. So I used to make the drive every morning before class. It's, you know, 45, 50 minute drive from Moorhead State to Lexington. So I drive every morning, ride at Keeneland, and then drive back and go to class um, and stay around Lexington in the summer. So it, break babies and do things like that. So it was a great way to pay for college. And it, you know, I was so busy that it kept me out of trouble. Cause I was, yeah, horses do that. That's what people have to realize. They're really good for keeping you out of trouble. So Jen, give us a little bit about your background. I'm just really curious how you wound up with racehorses. Um, so growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I loved horses. I was horse crazy. I grew up riding hunter jumpers. Um, both of my parents are musicians, um, classical musicians. And so they didn't have the funds to be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for warm bloods. And so I usually was riding off track thoroughbreds. And so I always loved watching, you know, anything I could watch on TV that had to do with horses. Like that was before Facebook and YouTube and, and all of that. So basically horse racing was the most dependable way to watch horses on TV. So I'd always watch the race plays from Thistledown every night. And I would look up the horses in the newspaper. I tried to do my little handicapping and that was like a job for me as a kid. I would always watch the replays from Thistledown. So my dad, you know, thought maybe it would be fun as a father-daughter activity one morning, like on a Saturday to take me and show me the morning workouts. He'd heard someone had told him that you could go watch the horses exercise in the morning. And so we did that and it was, I mean, it changed my life. I loved it. You know, I loved horses, but to see them at the peak of their athletic prowess and going so fast and see these riders who were just like, they stuck like Velcro to these very bouncy feeling good horses. And I just, I loved it. And so there was a trainer by the name of Joe Schumann, who's now at Fairhill Training Center up in um, Pennsylvania, but he was a retired school teacher and in his retirement trained a string of thoroughbreds and he saw my dad on the rail with his daughter and just said hey if you want to come back to the barn afterward I'd be happy to show her around and so went back to his barn afterward and I just like he showed me everything and I loved it so 
he told my dad, if she ever wants to come up here on the weekends, you're welcome to, you know, drop her off. I'll find something for her to keep her out of trouble. And from that point on, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, every day that I was not in school, every weekend, every vacation day, summer vacation, I was in Joe Schumann's barn and learning to walk hots and rub horses and do up legs and feed. And he was just, because he was a retired school teacher, he was so good at teaching a kid who wanted to learn. Um, and so then also kind of met some of the riders and they ended up teaching me how to gallop. Um, and so by the time I was ready to go to college, I really wanted to go somewhere where I could be immersed in the thoroughbred industry. Um, and so my parents didn't really have a ton of money to be sending me out of state for school. So the deal was that if I wanted to go out of state, I had to pay for it myself. So I ended up coming down to Kentucky to go to school and galloped at the track every morning to pay for it and really got to meet a bunch of great people and got to become more and more involved in the thoroughbred industry. And by the time I graduated, um, I graduated with a marketing degree, communications degree with a focus in advertising and public relations and marketing and ended up staying down here and getting a job at an advertising agency and spent most of my career working in marketing, um, both for the thoroughbred industry as well as more mainstream marketing. You know, I think this is so interesting because, you know, I mean, I grew up watching, um, you know, racehorses on TV. And of course the Triple Crown was the thing. And, and there used to be this tobacco company and you could like win a horse if you collected, my dad smoked. And so I can't remember now, it was Kentucky brand or something. And you collected the little certificates and you entered in to win the free thoroughbred. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that. Yeah, well, that dates me, okay. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, as a kid, we used to watch the races and watch the Triple Crown, especially. And of course, I saw Secretariat run and I have never forgotten that race. And, and he, in my opinion, he was the greatest racehorse ever. Um, but, you know, it's so fascinating to hear about your story. And I think this is such an important story because it seems lately the whole idea of racing has gotten, uh, what we always hear is the bad stuff. And what we don't hear is the good stuff. And like anything, the bad stuff, it only takes 10 or 20% of the bad stuff to kind of override the good things that are happening. And so many people are like, oh, we shouldn't race these horses and it's so awful and they're so young and everything. But you know, there's always a flip side to that conversation, at least I think there is. And part of it is that the racing industry puts so much money into the equine economy that if we pull out the racing industry, we actually lose the business because there aren't the, the training, the education, the investment, the uh, universities. I mean, there's so many things that go along with this that it's a matter of, in my opinion, making it more ethical. Um, and it certainly sounds like the man you worked for as a teacher really was that type of trainer. So can you talk a little bit about what he was like and, and what you saw and experienced with him? Yeah, I mean, he, I came at it from a horse loving perspective and he, he did as well. Um, you know, there's different way, like different entry paths to the racing industry, just like any industry for someone who is in a, in industry or position that they have a passion for, there's always a reason they got into it. And for horse racing, some people get into it because they love competition and it's basically a sport where you can own the part, you know, 
of a team. Um, others get into it from the handicapping angle. I got into it from the horse loving angle that I love thoroughbreds. I love them off the track. I love them on the track. And so he saw that and really tried to hone that in me. Um, he was always good about trying to make sure that his owners were responsible about their aftercare. Um, and he knew that I was really interested in that as well. And so by the time I was in high school, I was always riding horses that were making that transition from racetrack to their second career. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a huge part of my role now as executive director with the Retired Racehorse Project. And it's something I did when I was the marketing director at Three Chimneys Farm too, is, you know, trying to help people navigate aftercare for their horses. Because there's a lot of paths that a horse can take from on track to off track a lot of the right paths that horses can take there's also the wrong paths so being able to have someone to kind of hold your hand through that the first time he was really good about making sure I got all of the good experiences not only to be able to understand and handle racehorses but also you know how to be an advocate for them after because he saw that that was kind of where my my passion lies with the industry. And so it's just funny how you meet those people who really set their trajectory for what course you're going to be on in life. And so by the time I was, you know, out of college and even in college, I did a bunch with just helping people rehome their horses in college and always really enjoyed, you know, horse showing and the hunter jumper rings on off track thoroughbreds. And then afterward, I was always just as involved as I could be with aftercare. Um, you know, whether it was helping farms place horses or retraining project horses myself or helping um, to navigate with certain clients how to implement more uh, policies and procedures, things like that. So, you know, when yeah. I was a kid, a there was the thoroughbred classes in the hunter world and the non-thoroughbred. And the thoroughbred classes had 30 to 50 horses in the class and the non-thoroughbred had five. So again, I date myself. And then we got... <laughs> into the, but I grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut. I watched, you know, uh, Ronnie Much, Frank Chapeau, Mary Chapeau, uh, Bill Steinkraus. These are all the people in my backyard um, that came through Oxridge Hunt Club Horse Show every summer and then went on, they were on the circuit. And so the thoroughbred was so valued when I was a kid. It was, and it was so appreciated for the horse that it is. And it's a phenomenal breed. Um, and then the warm bloods came in and we went through this whole period of these big clunky horses and then we started to you know figure out that we didn't necessarily have the best warm bloods and and, and the whole market shifted and so over this 40 50 years um you know i've watched all these changes and it's i'm so grateful that we're now starting to recognize the value of our thoroughbreds i think they're amazing and they're super they're super horses they're tough horses they're sensitive horses and they were such a different ride than the warm blood um in that you know, and they come in a variety of sizes and a variety of, of, of activities that they can go in. And so I think that this whole idea of recognizing that the breeding industry creates a breed, like they breed the thoroughbreds and that when we start to figure out, okay, this one's not going to make it, it hasn't matured fast enough, or, you know, it's just not has the desire to run. And so that we start to filter that out early on, which sounds like what they're doing like at Three Chimneys now, is filtering it out early on so that the right horses get to the track that are designed to do the job and love the job and that the other horses are finding good homes. Yeah, I mean, it's been years since I've worked at Three Chimneys now, so I'm not sure what their, their current program is there. But yeah, I mean, I, 
I'm a big fan of warm bloods too. I love riding the warm blood. I mean, everyone has their preferences. I like riding the thoroughbred more, but I think it's how you're raised and what you're used to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen this evolution that you're talking about, you know, with the thoroughbreds kind of fell out of favor in the hunter jumper world and people kind of preferred that different kind of ride, which then translates into, you know, the judges preferring to score that kind of ride higher. And now, um, you know, organizations like the one I'm the head of the retired racehorse project, as well as um, the thoroughbred incentive program, and the take two program, we're trying to not only create more opportunities for thoroughbreds out there to give people more reasons to be competing on them again, um, but the RRP specifically, we work really hard to try to empower more equestrians with the skills and knowledge to take these horses that are, like you said, purpose-bred to be athletes. And so they are a little more sensitive, and they, especially if they're coming from a racing environment, they're keyed up. Like, they're amped because... <laughs> What is asked of them is to have quick bursts of speed, and then we're trying to kind of repackage that and direct their energy and their athleticism into jumping or dressage or barrels or whatever. Um, so it's giving equestrians more of the skills and tools and contacts in their area, like whatever they need to be successful with thoroughbreds, I think that is a big part of thoroughbreds having this resurgence in the show ring is that you need to have the riders who can take them and find success with them and since they haven't been as common as they used to be 50 years ago you need to re-educate equestrians about either how to do that or how where to go to learn how to do that yeah i agree with you it's because we they've sort of as you say they went out of favor and they are different but I mean, there's so much of the American story, in, in my opinion. I just remember them so clearly in my childhood and how they were in the eventing world and in the show jumping world, they, they're amazing. So, um, so let's talk a little bit. Can you tell us a bit about the retired, how did the Retired Racehorse Project come about? So it came about about 10 years ago. We celebrated our 10 year anniversary recently. Uh, so it's not that old of an organization. Um, it was started by a gentleman named Stuart Pittman up in Maryland. He was a lifelong eventing rider and coach and trainer. And he had risen to um, the upper levels of the world of eventing on thoroughbreds. And he saw this, this, the same thing we're talking about happening where the thoroughbreds had fallen out of favor and people wanted warm bloods more so than thoroughbreds and uh, he really wanted to reinvigorate the, the idea of the thoroughbred sport horse. And so he, um, he created just a little, it wasn't even an organization at the time. It was just kind of a little event um, to celebrate the thoroughbred and, and all they can do, which kind of morphed into um, this 100-day challenge that they ended up holding I believe it was on the home stretch of Pimlico the first time um, where he had, it was an invitational. So they had riders from various disciplines who each took a horse off of the track and they had a hundred days to show like the transformation that horse could make from a racehorse into another discipline. So has this all developed, because I, I remember I used to go to the Maryland Horse Expo, right? 
um, and as a clinician and present. And he was there doing the thoroughbreds. And I can remember when he would have his, you know, time in the big arena and they would showcase thoroughbreds. But it's hard to believe that it's only been 10 years and it's gone from what he started back then, because I think that's probably where he first started showcasing the thoroughbreds, to yeah. what, what you're doing now. That's amazing to get that far in 10 years. Oh, my, I know. I, it's, it's one of those ideas that just kind of snowballed because it was an idea that was too good to fail, you know? Um, but yeah, he started giving demos at various like equine expos and events. He did the 100-day challenge, and that 100-day challenge over the years morphed into what we now know as the Thoroughbred Makeover, which has become the biggest um, racehorse retraining competition in the world. So people, it's different than a, an, a normal horse show because all of the horses that compete there, and you get hundreds of horses from all over the U.S. and Canada to compete in Kentucky every year. Um, but all of the horses that compete there at most have had 10 months of retraining since their last race. So that's kind of the ultimate um, unifier, you know, like you might have teenagers competing alongside very savvy adult amateurs competing alongside Olympians, but they're all on horses that they have only had 10 months or less to retrain. Um, so it's a key unifier there, and it's really neat to see what different people can do with different horses in various disciplines with just that amount of time. So, so when did it move to Kentucky? It moved to Kentucky about five years ago. So it had been held for several years on the back, or excuse me, on the home stretch of Pimlico Racecourse, but it just it outgrew that space so quickly. You know, we'd have hundreds of people who would come to watch when we'd hold it there. And you could only do so much if you set up arenas on the home stretch of the race course. And to be totally fair to the horses. Oh, sure. Less of retraining, putting that, them right back in that racetrack environment can easily overface them because it puts them right back in that racetrack mind. So having it at the Kentucky Horse Park, which is a premier equestrian um, competition venue, gives us a lot more space so we can separate all 10 disciplines. Um, and we have so many more horses that need to compete. We need seven and eight rings operating simultaneously. So I think the horse park, I mean, I know the horse park because like I said, I, I, I went to my grad school in Kentucky. I think it's just the perfect venue because it pretty much the middle of the country and they've always honored racehorses. I do, I do have one kind of odd story with my thoroughbred off the track. I went to outride at the uh, Rolex. Yeah. And I brought him to the horse park and I put him in a stall and you know how they play the call to the races. Well, that didn't work out too well for my horse. He came a little unglued when he heard that. And I, and it took me a while to get him back in a stall after that, about six months. But um, I know it was just like, okay. Um, but, but I think it's a perfect venue because it's designed to handle huge crowds. They've had Rolex there forever. Um, it's middle of the country. Pony Club has their every three years, their um, festival there. And, and they're designed to showcase thoroughbreds. So I think, I, and I agree with you, I hadn't thought about the part of taking off the track thoroughbreds, reschooling them and putting them back on a track. And it's, it's kind of like hard to, to say, go back there and not act like a racehorse again, since it is a track. Well, and it's a lot different now that, like back then when it was an invitational, 
we only had a couple of riders, a couple, like 26 riders competing that first year. We only had a small number of riders and they were top, top level professionals. And now we have divisions for juniors. We have divisions for amateurs and professionals and now teams as well. But so there's a lot more, we have the ability to accept a lot more people into the competition every year. So we need to have a venue that's conducive to a variety of skill levels. Um, and it, it also being in Kentucky makes it easier for people who are traveling, especially from out West or from down South, we're a little bit farther to the West than, you know, the, the actual East coast where Pimlico, Pimlico is. So makes it a little bit easier for people who are traveling from like Western Canada and California and, and all of that. Absolutely. So how many horses compete now when you have an event? Say so, uh, if we would have held the event this exactly. year, we probably would have, I think we accepted about 650 applications. So when someone wants to compete in the thoroughbred makeover, they have to fill out an application as a trainer. They apply as a trainer. They have to fill out a rigorous application that offers information about their background and the riding experience and their history. We also ask for letters of recommendation from professionals in the industry, as well as from their veterinarian, who's attesting that this person would be a good custodian of the horse in their first year of reschooling after racing. And then they have to submit um, one or more videos of them riding at the level that they would want to be competing in the thoroughbred makeover. So if you say you want to retrain a horse to jump, you know, do the two foot six inch jumpers or the field hunters or barrel racing, you need to provide us a video showing that you yourself can do that as well. Um, and so once we get all of our trainers accepted, then they go out and find the horses that they want to use. And as long as those horses meet our criteria. Um, so like, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So, so you received 650 applications with a video from around mm -hmm. the North America. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I hope you have a team to view 650. We, we actually got about 700 applications. 650 were the ones that were approved. Um, and so, yeah, we have a committee of, I think our committee has seven people on it. So we, I'm on the committee as well. We each get about a hundred applications and videos that we have to review. Um, Hopefully there's a time limit on those videos. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It can not be more than I think three minutes. Okay, good. Because I, I, I've done a little video review and I know how long it can take. Yeah. I, I don't have the attention span for more than three minutes. I am basically the human version of goldfish when it comes to watching. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, I, I mean, I just, the more you talk about this, I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was growing. I knew it was getting bigger, but like the first year you were in Kentucky, how many horses did you have compete, roughly? I want to say probably around 150. And then the second year, roughly? I can't remember how many we had year to year, but I know we've gone from around 150 the first year we were in Kentucky to now we usually you know, expect between four and 500 horses coming to Kentucky, uh, to the Kentucky Horse Park. I think last year we had right around 400 um, and that's basically due to attrition, you know, like right. horses during the course of their training, 
maybe they get hurt. Some people, maybe they get hurt or get in a car accident, heaven forbid, or, you know, start a family. There's so many things that can come up. Life, like COVID, life happens. But I know some people that have had, like Richard Lamb had a horse that he uh-huh. had entered, um, and then something happened to his horse. Um, but Jenny Spain is a good friend of mine. She's one of my students. And she, yeah, she had a horse that wound up, it was first place in the dressage uh, on the second to last day, a uh, mayor, a beautiful mayor. I can't remember her name, but so, so I, you know, I have a little bit of inside information on, on some of the people and know them. Um, but it's just amazing to me that you've, you know, like in five years, you went from 150 to, to like 400 horses showing up with 650 to 700 applications. It just, it just speaks to the, to the, um, untapped and desire for people to work with thoroughbreds and to bring the breed back into competition and to acknowledge what a great horse it is and also that there's a place for these horses when they're not on the track and and i think this is a really important thing to to acknowledge is that they they have a purpose and a use and they can go into so many different disciplines and it provides a, a means of keeping the horses horse industry alive in this country because you know like in so many places the horse industry is being pressured largely by land you know somebody builds a housing development and shoves the barn to the side and the lack of i started in in a riding school i spent a lot of years in a riding school and how that's been lost but the the underlying desire for people to connect with a horse and to have a horse and to want to do right by that horse. I think that speaks to this kind of engagement and speaks to that. And how many people do you have that come to the event like last year, like watchers? We get a couple thousand people who come, you know, usually if someone's bringing a horse, they bring a person or two to help, you know, with grooming or just support or things like that. And then you get so many people from, I'd say the greater Lexington area within a hundred miles or so, who come out to the competition. I mean, for a couple of reasons, they might, one cool thing we do is we send out these postcards to all of the brooders of the horses that are competing in this competition. So every year when we get our final list of horses entered, we look up all of the brooders. Um, The jockey club is great about helping us with that. So we get the addresses of all the breeders and they receive this postcard that says, congratulations, the horse you bred, whatever its name is, X, uh, is competing in the world's largest thoroughbred retraining competition. We'd love for you to be our guest. And so we often get a lot of brooders coming out to see horses that they haven't seen since they were foals to watch them compete. But we also do... um, a big vendor fair. We have about a hundred vendors that come everything from like tack and apparel retailers to aftercare organizations, jewelry, artwork, you name it. Um, so we do that. And then we also do a lot of clinics and seminars. So, you know, if you want to learn more about um, nutrition for thoroughbreds after racing or soundness or saddle fitting or, you know, topics that tend to be common when it comes to retraining thoroughbreds after racing because their bodies go through a big change oh, in yeah. a number of ways. So we do a lot of educational stuff there as well. And then we also do parties because everyone wants to have a party. So in non-COVID years, we do a big competitor party as well. Um, so it's kind of, you know, just a fun week to celebrate thoroughbreds. And it coincides with usually either the first or second weekend of the Keeneland race meet. So it's kind oh, of awesome. 
people can come to Kentucky and they can like tour a horse farm and they can go to Keeneland and either watch morning training hours or take in a few races in the afternoon. They can come out to the makeover and watch that. It's a really cool way to celebrate thoroughbreds if that's your thing. That is so awesome. It's, is Stuart still involved? I think he's moved. Yeah, he is still on our board. Um, he decided to, that's how I ended up in the position I'm in. Um, so he was the executive director of the Retired Racehorse Project since its inception until about three years ago. And then three years ago, he really, it, he wanted to run for public office and it, it was a desire that kept building and building. He really wanted to help create change um, in the, the Maryland, greater Baltimore area, which is where he's from. And so he, I, at the time, I had been on the board as well for the RRP for several years leading up to that. And he had asked if I would be willing to come on part-time as their executive director because you really need to take a step back. Um, and at the time, I had my marketing agency, but I had it with a partner and we had two other girls that worked for us. And so I was able to kind of rearrange my responsibilities with the agency to take that on part-time. And then the RRP has just continued to grow and grow and grow. We publish a magazine four times a year. We put on clinics around the country that teach people how to retrain off-track thoroughbreds and we do seminars around the country and all of these different things that are trying to expand the market for thoroughbreds after racing and get more equestrians, not only wanting them, but like savvy enough to take them on and, and have fun with them and do well with them. So it very quickly went from a part-time job to a full-time job. Yeah. So that's what I, that's, I, I, you know, I, I can, I can only imagine that when Stuart started this, he had no idea where it was going to go. And yeah. it's such a testament to his desire to see that thoroughbreds find good homes and that we acknowledge the breed that they are. And I think that, you know, it needs to be said that he really did start something that is truly amazing and that is, has helped so many horses, but also so many people. And, you know, you, you can't help a horse unless you help a person is the way I look at it. Um, I started out, I never wanted to work with the people. I only wanted to work with the training of the horses. You know, that's one of the reasons I went to Kentucky was I just wanted to work with horses. And long story short, I figured out that if I helped one horse and I handed it back to the owner, it might not stick. But if I helped one person, every horse they touched would be changed. I love that. You know, and, and so it really, it just, it was just an obvious transition for me that I had to help the owners. And so often people want to just help the horse, but you can't, you've got to help the person. And what, what he's created is an educational system for horse people because thoroughbreds are a little different. I want to talk about that in a minute. Thoroughbreds are a little bit different, especially coming off the track, but I just want to acknowledge what he started and how it has grown and what a service this is to the to the racing industry, but also to the equestrian industry as a whole, because that kind of information trickles down, not just to thoroughbreds, but to the little pony in the backyard, right? To the person who's like, okay, maybe a thoroughbred's not quite right, but this quarter horse over here needs some retraining too. Um, and so I don't think we'll ever know how far the tentacles reach. It gives me chills. Um, but I just want to acknowledge what an amazing thing and just how you have are also stewarding it forward now and how this thing is just really taken off. And, and it's such a counter, and I, and I do want to say this, it's such a counter to some of the other spectacles that we have with horses that um, 
don't give the horse the time it needs to change habits. And I think that that's so important to recognize that habits don't change in a moment and you can't train a horse in three days. You really need time and, and to understand that horse and get to, to, to recognize where, where it's, what it's experienced and what its issues are and then how to help those issues. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about kind of the process that a off the track thoroughbred goes through in this hundred days in terms of what is the experience they're coming off the track with since you have so much experience there and what are some of the, the sort of things that they have to relearn that people have to acknowledge and sometimes accept from these horses as they're going through this reschooling process. Well, first of all, I'll correct one thing. It used to be 100 days for the challenge that we did, but now the thoroughbred makeover is 10 months. Um, because like you said, you know, three days would not be enough time for almost every horse. 100 days probably really isn't enough time to give a horse a solid foundation. We feel like for the average horse coming off of a racetrack, 10 months is a good amount of time for them to receive a solid foundation of training and care and nutrition and everything that comes with that in order to give them that launching pad for the rest of their career, um, their new career. But for some horses, that's not enough time, you know, mm -hmm. not, I always say not every horse is the right horse for the thoroughbred makeover. And that's another reason when I say that we have less horses that compete in the makeover than the number of applications that we get every year because you know not only can they get injuries or people can get injuries or life happens whatever for some horses that is just not the right goal for them and you start working with them after the track and realize that that goal might overface them and they just are the type that needs more time right. um, but for the average horse i'd say coming off of the the track like they come off of the track with so much training already they they work every day they enjoy working every day they like having a job and a routine and a purpose and um and so if it depends horse to horse but for a lot of horses i find coming off of the track giving them that that similar daily interaction, whether it's working with them on the ground, grooming them, lunging them, teaching them how to lunge. If they don't know how to lunge, riding them. If they have no physical limitations and they're not, you know, so out of their element that they do need a few weeks just to kind of chill out, you know, starting just with doing simple things every day, I think is a great way to transition them after racing. I personally tend to give them, you know, like, a week or two to settle in and then start picking up that process. But a lot of them come off the track, even, you know, now more than ever before, they're getting a pretty good foundation in a lot of cases um, when they're started for the racetrack. There's so many breaking, <clears throat> breaking and training operations around the country now that are thinking more and more about what this horse is going to do not only at the racetrack but after the racetrack so they do a lot of natural horsemanship or they do a lot of groundwork or things like that so it makes our job as retrainers easier um but i think in those first months coming off of the track they're going to go through so many changes obviously mentally they're going to over time slow down like they might come off the track and they are fire breathing dragons because so used to a high energy, high activity environment and 
when they're asked to work under saddle, they're asked to go fast and that's all they know. So it does take a while to kind of take the edge off in that way. Um, but at the same time, it takes a while for them to, you know, transition to a different nutrition plan because they don't need the number of calories they take yeah. at the racetrack. They're not using that many calories and it takes them a while to transition to turnout, which seems silly, but it's, you know, They've been in a stall more than they've been turned out. Some tracks um, and some training centers have turnout opportunities. Others don't. A lot of them don't. So their only time to go out is when they're hand-walked every day, when they're ridden most days. And so transitioning to turnout sometimes is a bit of a process. <clears throat> I find like something like Termosa D'Angel or a little bit of Ace really helps with that process so they don't do anything silly. Um, but transitioning to them to that and also to being social again, because another thing they haven't had a lot of is true unsupervised interaction with other horses. So it's kind of like when you go to an event all by yourself after you've been quarantined with COVID for six months, <laughs> walk into this room where everyone knows each other, but you don't know anyone. And it, it can feel intimidating and you feel uncomfortable and it's going to take you a beat to find your legs and figure out. I think that's a great analogy. I think we can take it a little further. Let's say we're taking a, we're taking somebody who runs every single day, five miles and suddenly they're locked in their house with COVID and they can't get out. And mm -hmm. so you have a lot of pent up energy. You have been, you know, eating the calories, like you say, for a high level activity and suddenly you can't go anywhere. And so it takes that little bit of time to sort of let down, I think, um, um, an important piece. Yeah, I have a friend who played um, college football at a high level and then played um, semi-pro on an indoor league. And so he has gone through that transition of like being a high-level athlete for all intents and purposes, a professional athlete more or less, and all of a sudden, when his athletic career was over, it took his brain mentally a little while to kind of ease into the next phase of life. You know, like he and his wife got married, they had kids, and he loves that lifestyle now, but he has told me he has an off-track thoroughbred now, and he <laughs> started volunteering at this aftercare organization here in Lexington, um, the Kentucky Equine Adoption Center is where he volunteered and got that horse. He said that he could, so, he always loved horses and he could so empathize and sympathize with what these horses go through when their racing career like very immediately comes to an end. And then all of a sudden, like the routine they knew was gone, the people they right. knew were gone, the lifestyle they knew is all gone. And so he really found his niche with them helping these horses that had trouble with that transition, especially the horses that had been on the track for so long. Um, and then he ended up adopting a horse from there. And he always talks about how he just understands it on a different level because it's very similar to what pro athletes go through. But they have the luxury of being able to communicate that with other people. And horses, like, we know our horses so well, but we actually never speak a word between each other and so you kind of like if you understand it through that lens you can see how they're going through those challenges as they transition to a new career. 
I think that's such a great story. And, you know, it's, it's so often if we haven't had that kind of life experience, it's hard for us to relate to it. Like I can relate to anybody who's had a serious riding accident because I've had pretty major riding, but if, I can't relate to anybody who's had a baby because I've never had a baby. So, you know, it's, it's having similar life experiences. And I think that's one of the things probably that you look for when you're looking at all these trainers who apply is do, have they had a life experience that gives them the skills they need to take uh, off the track thoroughbred and go through that process. Because I think for some people, it's like, why is my horse doing that? Well, he's not doing it to you. He's doing it because he's, this is his routine for, you know, the last two years of his life. And so it's how he has been. And then we're saying, look, we're going to change everything about your life. We're going to change where you're located, who your friends are, how, you know, how, what, that you stay out or you, you know, all those things. And by the way, we're going to now teach you new life skills. Right. And so it is. Yeah. So how many different, um, um, activities, disciplines, do you have like, so someone's going to get a off the track thoroughbred and hopefully they know, they know enough, they do know enough about their particular sport because you've checked on that. And then how do they go about looking for a horse that's going to fit with their activity? If that's a really good question. And there are a lot of different answers and there's no right or wrong answer. So there's some people who really want to, let's say their background is show hunters and that's really what they want to do. Um, so they can look at the different aftercare organizations, the Thurber Charities of America and Thurber Aftercare Alliance, TCA, TAA. They both have fantastic lists on their website that show all of the adoption facilities for thoroughbreds throughout the country. Um, and you can search geographically. So let's say you're in Montana and you can search for the ones in like a 300 mile radius. And then they might look through videos and photos and look for the horse that has the type of movement and conformation and temperament that they want. There's also a lot of good resources that are um, racetrack based. So there are individuals um, as well as nonprofit organizations like Cantor um, who specialize in networking these horses that are coming off of the track. Let's say a trainer has a horse that he wants, he or she wants to retire, but they want to sell it, you know, for a couple thousand dollars after racing. And so these organizations help to network these horses. So um, Facebook and social media is a great way for people to be looking for horses. I think it's important to look in as many different places as you can if you're looking for a certain type of horse, you know, for your certain discipline, um, looking at the aftercare organizations, looking at all of these different rehoming agents around the country. You can call the racetracks and ask who are the rehoming agents of the racetracks where you are. You can also use, there's so many Facebook groups um, dedicated to rehoming thoroughbreds state by state or region by region or OTTB Connect, which is kind of the mother of all of those groups. Um, so can I ask, we're, um, okay, so Stuart Pittman was developing the um, the Retired Racehorse Project, but at the same time, were these other organizations already in existence, or is this something that's kind of, have they grown together, you know, uh, simultaneously, I guess is what I'm trying to say. A, a lot of these organizations were already in existence. There have been a lot more that have popped up in the last 10 years. I. I don't think as a result of the RRP, but I would definitely say I think the RRP helps to support their efforts and make the time that they're investing in these horses 
go farther because we're trying to expand the market of people who want to adopt or buy these horses. So hopefully there's more horses being adopted out or purchased um, through these organizations or off of the track. Is there a, is there a, um, a list or is there a website that people can go to, to, to find these organizations? Do they just do a Google search? And is there any way to uh, judge whether or not it's a reputable organization? So what I was saying before about the Thoroughbred Charities of America and Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, they are, um, the TAA is an accreditation body and the TCA um, also has a rigorous um, application process for people to get grants. And so you know that if one of the organizations is accredited or approved by the TAA or TCA, that is a reputable organization. It's almost like the Better Business Bureau. Awesome. That's great. So going to their websites and looking for organizations based on your geographic area at their websites is one great way to do it. Um, the Retired Resource Project also has um, a classified section, so anyone can post a thoroughbred for sale there. There's a lot of horses that are either coming directly from the track on there or that have come off of the track and have had a few months of retraining. Um, because that's, I find a lot of times that, especially adult amateurs, want a horse off of the track and then want to do the training themselves, but they find it so much easier if someone else has put those first rides on that horse and kind of gotten them over that hump of transitioning from racing to second career. Cause that's just one of those incremental things where a little every day makes for a successful transition. Um, so yeah, there's great resources on the RRP website as well. That's awesome. So, so a lot of these horses, okay, now I know this is kind of a tough number, but roughly, so you've got the horse for 10 months. How many months do you think roughly you see a horse go through that period of sort of uh, de deprogramming from the racing idea and starting to move into the new career? Is that something that takes a month, two months on average? I realize that every horse is different. I mean, I always feel like that first year of retraining after racing sets the tone for the rest of their life. So if they get proper training in those first 10 months, you have a really solid individual for whatever that next step is in their career. You know, I think when you take a horse off of the track within 90 days of training, you have a totally different horse than you started with. You know, they're starting to become a little bit more even paced and even tempered and starting to understand basic um, lateral work and understand um, maybe either canter departures or lead changes, um, simple or flying, you know, just like the simple things. And then if you give them another six months or another six to 12 months, you keep fine tuning all of those bones and buttons that you're trying to put on them. Um, I really think a year of training, you know, 10 to 12 months is a sweet spot for a horse. Um, but I think next year is going to be really interesting when we do. So we have to postpone the thoroughbred makeover this year, um, but we want to retain, it's a $135,000 competition. So there's a lot of stake and people get all of these horses off of the track with that goal in mind. It's not their only goal, nor should it be, but and that's a big first year goal. So we didn't want to just cancel it and take that opportunity away. So next October, we're going to let 
all of the 2020 horses compete in one division, all of the 2021 horses compete in a different division for separate prize money. And I think it's really going to be interesting to see side by side what the horses who have received the 10 months of training look like in comparison to the one that people have had two years to retrain them. In a lot of cases- It's 22 months of training. Wow, that is gonna be so yeah. fascinating. I, I, that really is, that's so cool that you're doing that because it gives you a perspective because, you know, I've always told people when they get a new horse, it takes a year to know that horse. You have to know that horse in all the seasons. And, you know, I mean, I like that. yes. Yeah. Because I've seen horses, you know, in the springtime, they're totally calm, come fall, they're a little dancey, but it's just, it's just the wind is up a little bit. Other horses in the springtime, they're like, you know, really raring to go. And by fall, they're like, yeah, you know. So that year, but this is going to give them, this is going to be such an amazing comparison between the two groups. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is that not everybody's designed to, to get a horse off the track and go to the RP, RRP, right? A lot of people would like to have a thoroughbred, but they want somebody to have done some, uh, you know, retraining on the horse before they invest in that horse. And they're willing to invest in that training. Um, and so the idea of about a year get looking for a, a thoroughbred off the track that's had about a year of training makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, you know, that's really a much better bet for a lot of people who really want a thoroughbred, but maybe not have the skills or the time, because it takes a lot of time to work with these horses just coming off the track. Well, and the great thing about the thoroughbred makeover, <laughs> there are many great things. There are many. Yeah. One of those things is, um, a lot of the horses that compete at the makeover are available for sale or for adoption. So we have um, every year at the makeover, we partner with the ASPCA to put on the Thorberg makeover marketplace. And so I'd say it's usually about a quarter to a third of the horses competing at the makeover are available for sale or adoption. Some people are fostering that horse for an aftercare organization and have trained it for five to 10 months, and then that horse is adoptable upon conclusion of the makeover. Other people purchase the horse off of the track as a project horse, hoping to sell it after the makeover. So we went to catalog every year, and we also have an app where people can look up um, any horse they see at the competition, basically. They all wear bridle tags with their competition number, and if that number is a green number, that means that horse is entered in the marketplace. So people can then look that horse up on the app, find out all the relevant information about it, what its height is, what its race record was, what it's been doing since it left the track, who has it, and they can also connect with the person who's offering it for sale or adoption through there. And so the RRP is not party to the sale or adoption transaction, but at the makeover, people can go horse shop and they can try those horses out. They can do the pre-purchase exams there um, it's really been, it's become an amazing horse shopping opportunity that's being regarded nationally as such. So really, it's so well organized, like to have the tags and the connections and all the background information. Yeah. That, that is a ton of work to, to put all those pieces together. I'm, you know, the more you talk about this, the more I'm amazed at as what this has grown into from that little kernel of the seed way back at the beginning yeah. really i mean when, where else can you find 150 well-started sport horse prospects for sale all right in front of you you can yeah. walk, you, know, you can make your short list you can try the four or five that you like i mean 
it's like going to a thoroughbred sale, but you get to try them and touch them and pet them and do all that too. And talk to the to the trainers and talk to the breeder if they're there and get yeah. the background story on the horse. Because that's the other thing is so often when you get a horse off the track with not going through this process, you get a horse off the track, you don't know its history. You don't know its breeder, what happened to it, where it came from. Sometimes you have like no information. And then you wonder two months later, why is my horse doing this? Because you don't have the background information and he's reacting to something that you don't know that he had a bad experience say in the start gate and suddenly he has to go through a doorway and he freaks out and you're like, oh, my horse is being bad. He's like, no, he's not. He's just reacting to something that happened to him. And we have to be so empathetic to, to a lot of these horses. Um, you know, some of them have PTSD. Some of them have come off of some, some bad experiences where they had a wreck or something happened to them or they had an injury. And when we fail to acknowledge that horses have the same memory, and you know, I've interviewed Dr. Steven Peters and we've talked about the horse's brain. Um, when, when we start to realize they have the same wiring as we do in many aspects, then we can understand, oh wait, this is just a memory and he's just reacting to something and I might not see it. I'm reading a great book right now, it's called Walking the, uh, Walking the Tiger, uh, Healing Trauma. Um, and I'm trying to read the, the author there. Um, I think it's Peter. Peter Allen, anyway, um, and he talks about PTSD in people. And there are some horses that have PTSD and they can get through it if we, instead of reacting to their behavior, acknowledging their behavior and recognizing they just need another choice. I mean, it's just like a horse that's been in a trailer accident or and it doesn't have to be racetrack related. We get, we get horses and not knowing what they've been through all of a sudden we face them with the challenge that puts them in that mindset you're talking about. And it's, you know, it's being empathetic and intuitive enough to understand, like identify what they're actually reacting to and work them through it. And it's not just thoroughbreds, it's all horses. You know, yeah. I mean, so often somebody gets a horse and six months later the horse is reacting to something and they can't understand, but that horse has made an association with something it experienced with something that's happened to it, just like people. Like whenever you drive past a place where you saw a car wreck and you have that convulsive reaction, that's part of our nervous system and part of their nervous system. So, so uh, you mentioned the prizes, but I wanna just ask how many disciplines do you have at the, at the event? We have 10. I can try to name them. Okay. <laughs> messy, but I'm gonna try. We have um, barrel racing, competitive trail, dressage, eventing, freestyle, field hunters, um, ranch work, um, polo, show hunters, and show jumping. That's it. You got it. <laughs> and so the, 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 the prize money was kind of surprising to me. What, isn't that spread across all the disciplines? Yeah. So we have, um, we have a lot of different ways people can earn money at the makeover. So if you win your discipline, um, let's say you win show jumping, you get a $5,000 check. There are also additional prize money for the top uh, finishing amateur, top finishing junior. And then if you win, you do the finale. So all of the winners of all 10 disciplines come back and compete in the finale on the final day. And if you win the finale, you get an extra $10,000. So that's, you know, if you win the finale, that's $15,000 right there. On top of that, we have a lot of different special awards. So a lot of different state uh, thoroughbred brood associations 
have contributed prize money for the, the top place Pennsylvania bread or the top place Maryland bread. Um, so let's say you have a New York bread um, and you are the top place New York bread, that's another $5,000 bonus. Um, we also have awards for horses who have come from aftercare organizations. So it's really good for people to strategically, if, if they don't have a specific horse that they are connected with, sometimes people know a horse from the tracing days or they've already acquired a horse um, for other reasons, which is amazing. Then they need to look and see what that horse is eligible for. But then we have some people who are looking for a horse that will be um, eligible for the most prize money. So they might look for Kentucky bred who's from uh, new vocations who you know, could be competed with a junior rider or something like that. Um, so there's some strategy behind how much prize money you can be eligible for, but it's so good for people to really thoroughly look through their horse's background to understand what they're eligible for. Where was my horse bred? Where did it race? There are some racetracks that offer some prize money if the horse ran a certain number of starts at that track or um, how many starts that horse had overall. So it, it gives people a reason to really understand their horse's uh, history on the racetrack. And then and you just end up having even more respect for your horse once you know everything they've accomplished. You know, this is so amazing. I wonder if they'll ever start this for the quarter horse racing industry. It would be really great to see that for the other racing industries that exist. Um, or like great. the standard breads, you know, um, I think it would be really, it's just an amazing program. And I'm so grateful that you chose to, to come and be on a webinar with me because I've known about the program, like I said, for a very long time when I used to be at the Maryland Horse Expo. But, you know, you don't realize just how big something's grown when you're busy doing something else. And, um, you know, with, with my teaching schedule in the past years, I mean, I'm, you know, every weekend I'm gone. And so there's, there's very little, um, you know, oxygen left over in the room for me to explore other things. So this has been really great to have this time with you to, to hear about how amazing this program is and how big it's gotten, how much support it has and how many horses it's transitioning from the racing industry into riding horses. And I just think that um, it's really important that we start reframing our perspective of thoroughbreds and breeding and the whole bit to see that there, there is a positive note here and there is hope and there is a way to make this work for everybody. And so that the right horses that love to run get to run because they really do. When you get a, a horse that loves to run, it's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And they also can have this career. You know, there's a really interesting book by a, a professor at University of Virginia. It's called Cradle to Cradle. And basically what his book is about is that we need to think about how an item, how a product is going to end its life before we build it. So the whole idea is that when we create a product, let's just say a plastic bottle, that we think about how is that plastic bottle going, what's, where it's gonna be at the end. And most of the time what we're doing is downcycling. The plastic bottle is downcycled into polar fleece, which then you know, sheds fibers and gets into the fish in the oceans. Instead of thinking of maybe there's another way. And I think what we're looking at here in the racing industry is we're looking at this cradle to cradle idea. These horses that are being bred for running, how are, how are they gonna end their career in a positive way so that they're, they're contributing to the equestrian world, but they're also being valued for what they are from the beginning. Um, and I think that that's what the organization is really doing. 
Yeah. Well, it's just been so gratifying and, and neat to see how many owners who really, I mean, they are not equestrians. They love horse racing and they love their horses, but they don't understand the equestrian role and it's hard to navigate for them. But once someone shows them that, hey, this horse that you bred or that you used to race is now doing this, they want to follow it and they want to be interested in it. They just need someone to help show them how. So one of my favorite things that the thoroughbred makeover and really the RRP does is help to create some synergy between the racing and equestrian world. I think sometimes we all get in our silos, whether it's just yeah. specific or, you know, any industry. And I love that it's kind of bringing people together to, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be an avid polo player just to love your horse playing polo, but at least like you have a healthy respect for it and you enjoy watching it and cheering them on. Right. Now I, I, it's amazing what you're doing and I want to thank you again. So if, if there was somebody interested in learning more, what, where would they go? What would they do? They can go to retiredracehorseproject.org um, and you can find all of our contact information, my email address and all my contact information is there. So if they need help navigating anything, I'm happy to play the assist and point them in the right direction. Um, but they can also learn a lot about how to enter the makeover, how to, we have a lot of content on our website about how to re start and transition thoroughbreds from racehorse to riding horse, um, how to care for them nutritionally, soundness wise, everything. So and when does the 2021 competition start? Like when can they start putting in applications? Um, we, I believe we're going to try to get them open no later than December 1st. We might open them a little bit earlier than that. Typically the application period goes from December 1st to I believe it's January 15th but we might try to open it a little earlier this year. Okay. And then I know uh, we didn't get to talk about it. Um, you just had your virtual event because last yeah. weekend was supposed to be your, your event. And um, how did the virtual event go? It went really well. Thank you for asking. Um, it was great. We had some webinars um, on topics that are more pertinent to what people are dealing with now, like um, how to save more and spend less um, operating a farm or caring for your horses. So how to manage your budget and save some money during this very challenging year. Um, we had a couple that were geared more toward nonprofits and the aftercare and in quiet adoption world, helping them create stronger bylaws and engage donors in new ways since you can't do most of the things you typically do. Mm. Um, and then we also did a silent auction and some contests. And then my favorite part was we did one of our master class clinics, which takes some horses that have not, they've retired from racing, but they've not started their retraining. And we pair them with different trainers from different backgrounds. So this time we had three horses and paired them with a trainer who had a background in natural horsemanship, one who had a background in polo and one who had a background in hunter jumpers. Um, so it was kind of neat to have them show how different their approach is, but they basically had the same goals for that first ride. They just accomplished it in very different ways. So is that available uh, for people to watch? Yes, yeah, they can find it on our website or on our Facebook page. Awesome. Well, channel. Lots Jen, of thank you so much. This has just been so educational. I'm really glad that we had this chance to talk because I, I was impressed with the program before, but I am so much more impressed with it now with what's going on and just how, how the tentacles are going out and reaching more and more people. And it's 
it's just really everybody. So thank you for, I know it, it's gotta be a challenging job at times, especially during these times, but it's great. It's really awesome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for doing these. Your webinars are fantastic. Thanks. All right, everybody, well, we're going to bring this one to a close. And just remember, you can find this webinar and all the others on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Just check it out there, subscribe, and you'll get a notice every time we put up another webinar. Tomorrow, my guest, uh, I just forgot her name. It's Equine Reiki. <laughs> and her name, it's, it's okay, it's Equine Reiki. And then Bob Belker is coming back on Thursday. And I'm, I've lost the... I've lost the plot, but just go to the murdochmethod.com and just sign up for the webinars and you'll know all the people that we're having. And thank you again and everybody take care and be safe. Bye. Bye.